going to jump into the, the scriptures. Last week we were in a passage in Matthew uh, that I just shared with you um, from my heart how Jesus is stronger. I'm going to tell you this. Jesus is still stronger this week. He can overcome death and disease, and we sang about it. He overcame the, the tomb. He overcame uh, sin, and he can overcome whatever's going on in your life. And uh, we're going to look at the next passage in Mark today, in Mark chapter 3. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll open up the, the scriptures together. In Mark chapter 3, and verses 31 through 35. So let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to be together as a church. Thank you that uh, we can serve you. Uh, thank you for all the people that are serving, uh, whether it's on the tech team and the bridge kids that are ushering, that are praying for this service, uh, small group leaders, all the folks that are doing various things uh, that make this church be able to function the way that it does. And uh, you know the details of what needs to happen with this theater and where we're supposed to meet. and We put that in your hands. And uh, kind of like the little boy with five loaves and two fish. We just come to you and say, here's what we have to offer. Will you do something? And I pray you'd do something in this city and in our lives that would be like the feeding of the 5,000, where just so many people are touched and changed. And, and God, that uh, it's just so evident that you're the one that's at work. Please do that. Bring yourself glory. I pray as we open up the scriptures today that you would save people and change lives and encourage souls. And those of us who have been walking with you for a long time and just need a word of encouragement, give us that word. And those who need a word of confrontation, give that word. And those who need a word of spurring on to love and good deeds, give that word. And those who need to repent and turn to you, please do that. And we just trust you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to give you uh, one truth just to start us off today. And some of you may hate it and some of you may amen it. But uh, here's the truth. You come from a dysfunctional family. Some of you said amen <laughs> because you are the dysfunction in your family. Some of you may have really good close-knit families and you might be slightly offended by that. So let me just share with you what I mean. A uh, functional family is one that functions the way that God intended it to before sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And so everybody here comes from, in some form or fashion, a dysfunctional family. I remember one time I was uh, preaching at a college campus and I said something like, you know, a dysfunctional, I come from a dysfunctional family. And then I, I paused and I said, what is a functional family? And the audience started laughing. And so I think that people understand that you have a dysfunctional family, but some of you may not. And so what I did to prepare to get this message started was some in-depth internet research. And we know the internet is reliable. So therefore, I'm going to share with you some things that may help you diagnose whether or not you're from a dysfunctional family. One person that I read on the internet said that you might be from a dysfunctional family if there's more than one person in your family. <laughs> Go ahead and diagnose. Think through your family in that situation. Another person said that in their family, they, give, they have uh, ulcers that run in their family because they give them to one another. Think about that for a minute, or your ulcer maybe came from, maybe from a dysfunctional family. Uh, another person said that true happiness with family is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. <laughs> if you can relate with that, you may come from a dysfunctional family. There's one website that I saw that had multiple pictures that illustrated whether or not you came from a dysfunctional family. The first picture was of a young boy who had gotten a haircut. So if you ever had adventures in getting haircuts as a child... <laughs> you may have come from a dysfunctional family. If your parents were creative in how they disciplined you, you may come from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> See, here's my problem. When I saw that picture, I thought, that's a good idea. I'm going to use that. So I'm the dysfunction in our family. I understand that. And some of us, we could laugh at the things that our families did or different experiences we've had or things that we've even done as parents, but some of you, it's great pain. I know my own family, my parents were divorced from each other twice. So there's stuff there. And some of you have stuff. Some of you have been through difficult experiences. 
And some of you have really good families. And you might think, well, mine's not really that because it's not as bad as some other one. Let me tell you what the Bible says. It says that sin entered the world through one man. His name is Adam. It's in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So it's just Adam's fault. We've all done it too. But then it goes on in Romans chapter 5 and says there was another man who came. And he was the second Adam. His name's Jesus Christ. And it was through Jesus Christ that righteousness came into the world. So when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he wasn't dying for his own sin. He was dying for your sin and for my sin. And what happened on the cross, when Jesus died, is he paid for the sins of the world. The wrath of God was put on him because God couldn't just overlook sin. Somebody had to pay for it. And so Jesus did on the cross. And then every person who bows their knee to Jesus stops trusting in their church attendance, stops trusting in themselves, stops trusting in whatever you would trust in, and trust in what Jesus did on the cross gets reconciled to God, and then God sees them as righteous. At that point, you receive grace, you receive mercy, you get forgiveness. But you know what else happens? You become part of the family of God. And that is a family that is superior to our earthly family. And that truth might be encouraging for some of you that amened at the beginning about having a dysfunctional family. It may be offensive to some of you who have a really close-knit family. Either way, it's true that you become part of God's family, and that family is superior to anything that happens here on earth. It's a family of faith. And so today what we're going to talk about is the functional family of God. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. If you don't have a copy of the Scripture, the verses will be on the screen, but if you do have a copy, I encourage you to open up your Bibles and look at it because you can see some things that won't be up on the screen, some of the context of what happens. And in order to understand verses 31 through 35, you've got to know what happened last week in the passage we looked at. And if you weren't here last week, we talked about how Jesus is stronger, and that is still true. Amen? He's stronger than death. He's stronger than disease. He's stronger than our circumstances. He's stronger than anything you're going through, anything I'm going through. He can overcome that. And so we saw how he overcomes the strong man in the passage. Because the, remember, the scribes confronted him and said, Jesus, you can only do the stuff you do. He just casts out a demon. You can only do it by the power of Satan. He says, that's ridiculous talk. I'm stronger than Satan. And I can bind up the strong man. I can take his possessions. That's everybody that's in bondage. I can free them. But remember, just before that happened, we saw that Jesus had, and they were sinful people, a dysfunctional family. They came to arrest him. The NIV says to take charge of him. They wanted to take possession of him because they thought he was crazy. Now, we, we know that Jesus had some half-brothers that were born after Jesus was born. Mary's virgin birth. Was, then afterwards, Mary and Joseph had some kids. And we read about it in John chapter 7. And there was a time, at this time, they, didn't believe, they believed Jesus existed. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They didn't believe his teaching. Now, after the resurrection, that all changes. They become committed followers. And one of them becomes J James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And they are sold out once the resurrection happens. But at this point, they don't believe in Jesus. And they're trying to protect the family relationship. Verses 20 and 21 say they came to arrest him. And then we get the message that we looked at last week where Jesus is stronger and he's doing this teaching. And remember, he's so, it's so crowded in this house he can't even eat. He's super popular. When he's done with that teaching, then they show up. And what had happened was they had traveled from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is about a 30-mile trip. And while that was taking place, Jesus was teaching. He was getting even more popular. He's confronting these religious leaders, the ones who heap burdens on people with all their rules to obey. It says in verse 31, Then, after Jesus had taught the religious leaders that the unforgivable sin is when you fail to repent and place your faith in Jesus, the one thing that will never be forgiven is a continued rejection of his Spirit's work in your life and a failure to repent. 
Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And so it was so packed, they couldn't even get in. And so they sent somebody, maybe a little kid or something that could get through people's legs, send somebody in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Oh, mom and brothers showed up. Cool. But then look what Jesus says. A shocking statement. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. And the Greek grammar here is that he looked like with a searching look. Like he was looking into their hearts. And then he says this. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I'm going to tell you, I can't guarantee this, but I'm pretty confident this passage has never been preached on Mother's Day. This is probably not what you're going to hear at a family life conference of how to have a good biblical family. In fact, what you read here, it almost sounds like Jesus is anti-family. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not anti-family. Jesus knows the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. Jesus, he realizes that God has written the scriptures. If you look at Christianity, it's really one of the more family-oriented religions in the world. You look at the Old Testament and the theme of family. So Adam's alone, Genesis 2.18. It's not good for man to be alone. Then what happens? He creates Eve and he starts the institution of family. One man, one woman, they get married to each other. That was the solution to the aloneness was family. And then you read the book of Genesis, it all happens in the context of family. Highly dysfunctional families, by the way. Read about Cain. <laughs> That's messed up. Noah, his family, messed up. Abraham, not good. All in family context, though. Isaac, Jacob, you read all these different folks, and you start. You get out of the book of Genesis, you read, read the book of Ruth, family context. Read Job and his sufferings. They happen in a family context. The book of Proverbs is written as a parent would speak wisdom to a child family context. You've got different genres, all of these family contexts. You get to the New Testament, some of Jesus' closest friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, a family, brothers and sisters. You get to the book of Ephesians, God tells us how a husband and wife are supposed to relate with one another, family context, how a father is supposed to disciple children, family context. God's not anti-family. Jesus is an anti-family here. In fact, it's one of the primary analogies he uses when he talks about the church in the New Testament is family. He, he uses other ones. He talks about the bride of Christ. He talks about the body of Christ. He talks about um, different, different scenarios. But he talks about the family of God when he talks about the church. And what Jesus is saying is not anti-family, but he's saying there is a superior family, and it's the family of faith. God's family is a family of faith. That's our first point that God's family is a family of faith. And what you see here that's very interesting when you look at his biological family in this passage, they have something in common with someone else in the passage, and it's the scribes. It's the ones that accuse Jesus of doing the work of Satan. It's the ones that were opposing God's will. So interesting what Jesus says in verse 35, is those who do not know, but do God's will. And they might be unknowingly doing this, but they're trying to get Jesus to come with them. He's not eating. He's not taking care of himself. I mean, they think that he's lost his mind. They think that they're doing what's best for Jesus, but they're stopping him. They're trying to stop him, be an obstacle for him going to the cross, which is his plan. And so they're being used by Satan too. Be careful when you think you know what's best. What does God say? How is he directing? How is he guiding? 
And Jesus says, I, I'm closer with people who walk by faith than I am even with people that I have a blood relationship with. The, the family of faith, it's a, it's a thicker connection, it's a more intimate bond than even in my natural relationships with people on this earth, the people who want to do God's will. Now think about how shocking these words would be to this ethnocentric, Jewish, family-centered audience that would hear Jesus say these words. It wouldn't just be weird, they would be offensive. Like try and imagine being there. You're in this house. Jesus is incredibly popular. Uh, it says in verse 20 that it was so crowded that he couldn't eat. If you go back to chapter 2, you see that Jesus is so popular, people are tearing the roof off the place to get to him. Jesus is incredibly popular. He's just confronted these religious leaders who are saying that he's only able to do the stuff he's able to do by the power of Satan. And he says, no, I'm stronger than Satan. And so I'm not working with him. I've got power over him. And so I've come into his house, his domain, where he rules the God of this air, and, and I've bound him up, and now I'm now taking, they've come to arrest me, I've arrested Satan. And I'm taking his possessions. And when you see me cast out a demon, I'm showing I'm stronger. And when you see me, allow this guy who wasn't able to speak, which is what Matthew tells us happens in the passage right before this, he's not able to speak, and he's not able to see, and I give him eyes to see, and I let him speak, I'm showing you that I set the captives free, that I am stronger. And he's showing everybody that's in that audience, the same he wants to show you. He's stronger than any circumstance you can face. He's stronger than disease. He's stronger than death. He's stronger than any of that stuff. You can trust him. And so everybody's seeing this, and the house is getting more and more packed. So much so, you see in our passage, the family shows up. They can't even get inside. And Luke tells us it's because it was so packed, they couldn't get inside. So they've asked somebody. It's got to be a small person. They doesn't say it's a child, but I just assume it's a child. Tell somebody, go tell Jesus we're here. It's so packed, even the kid can't get to Jesus because, as you notice, it's not the messenger that tells them. It's the front row. So Jesus is teaching. He's teaching about the unforgivable sin. He's teaching about how he's stronger. He's going through his message. He's pre preaching the gospel. Incredible truths, but he's such a great teacher. He's aware of the audience, too. And he sees they start talking to each other. And then one of them tells Jesus, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. And then Jesus asked the question that he asked in verse 33. Look at that question again. Who are my mother and my brothers? It's not that Jesus didn't know the answer to that question. He's setting them up to teach them something. Can you imagine if you were Mary, how, how you would take this? This would be so, such a weird thing. To, who are you? Do you know Mary? If you've read the Bible, you know, in the, you know this Christmas story. She gets worse. She's a virgin, never been with a man. An angel comes to her and says, you're going to give birth. How is this possible? All things are possible. Ah, that doesn't explain it all, but okay. May it be to me as you have said. Amazing submission. What a godly woman. Then she, if you don't know the Christmas story, she gives birth in less than ideal circumstances. <laughs> That's a conservative statement. Read it. Uh, Luke 2 and Matthew, you can read the accounts of what took place. And then we don't have all the details of what happened, but we know that Jesus, fully God, fully man, he grew in wisdom and stature. She would teach him. She'd nurse him. She'd read books to him. She'd tell him Bible stories, the same as any other mother would. And then to come and, who's my mom? Who are my brothers? It's odd. It's an odd statement to make, Jesus. You ever see odd things, just observations about how culture works, and it just does, and so sometimes we take it for granted. Like, I've shared with you before, I'm a, I'm a football fan, I love football, especially college football, and there's a universal greeting. Whenever a young, you know, freshman, junior in college, whatever, is his first time on TV, it doesn't matter what TV, what team he's on, they always go, we're number one! They could be like, oh, and 10, and it's, we're number one! They play for Duke, we're number one! Whatever. Love you, Duke people. Just don't love your school. Anyway, <clears throat> And then they say, hi, 
Mom. It's always mom. That boggles my mind. Why is it mom? Because if I'm the dad, and I don't have boys, but I just think if I had a boy and he grew up and he played football, I would think, who taught you how to throw that ball? Who, who's the one who taught you how to get in a three-point stance? Who taught you how to tackle? Who taught you how to block? I spent all those times. I come home from work. We play catch underneath the streetlight, and you get on TV, and the first person you say hi to is mom? Seems odd to me. Someone in the first service said, but mom cooked the meals. That's right. This is more than just odd, what Jesus has done here. This is offensive. It's shocking. And he knows it. But it's not to hurt his mom's feelings. It's to get the attention of this audience. See, this audience, you think of the person that you know that's the most family-centric family you've ever met, and multiply that times like a bazillion. And you get an idea of the Jewish family-centered relationships they had. In fact, their identity was based on their family. And you can see this through the scripture. You start reading, why are all those genealogies there? Why all the clans? Why all the tribe? Because your identity came from your clan, your tribe, your family. It wasn't just who you were as an individual. It was who you connected to. That is your identity. In fact, some scholars in the Old Testament will say that in the Old Testament, the word life and the word family are used synonymously. Which explains why Jesus says other statements in the New Testament like this. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he's confronting people about whether they're going to come follow him, and hey, it's not just a nice idea or a new religion. Look what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, family and life synonymously, he cannot be my disciple. You can't follow me unless you hate your parents. Now wait, Jesus knows the fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. He knows that God's written the Bible in family context. He knows there's going to be instructions written later in the Bible about how the family's supposed to function. Ephesians chapter 5. He's not against family. What Jesus is using here is hyperbole. It's, he's using an extreme statement to teach a truth. And what he's saying is what you hold most important, that's utterly important to you in this Jewish culture, is your family. But if you're going to follow me, your love for me should make your love for your family look like hate in comparison. That you love me, I'm so superior to your earthly father, to your earthly relationships, that your love for me should look like hatred in comparison to what you hold nearest and dearest. And what he's saying here in this passage, when he asks this question, he's presenting to them that I've got a family. It's so, the family I'm talking about is so superior to your earthly family. It should look like Hey, who is, I don't even know, who he, he knows who his mom is. He knows who his brother is. Like, they don't, they don't even exist to me in comparison to those that are here. Now, he's not saying to cut off your family. That's like what cults tell you to do. You should love your family, try and win them to Christ so they can be part of the family of God too. Then you're like doubly related. What he's saying is there should be such intimacy in the family of God. These aren't just people you just bump into and see every once in a while, once a week when you come to a thing. This, this is your family. And see, think about the family of God. Isn't it interesting? With your natural family, you've got no say in the matter. You're just born into it, and there you are, and these are your parents, and these are your siblings, and this kind of happens. You're not just born into the family of God. You're born again into the family of God and also adopted into the family of God. Both things are true, but no one is just born into the family of God. Make sure you get that. I've had people tell me before, I'll say, when did you become a Christian? I'll say, well, I've always been a Christian. That's not consistent with what the New Testament teaches. If that is your thought, you may not be a Christian. 
You're not just born because your mom was a Christian or your dad was a Christian doesn't just make you a Christian. In fact, Christianity is not attached to nationality. Notice it says in verse 35, whoever does God's will, white, black, Indian, Mexican, Italian, whatever you are, whoever, it's not attached to a nationality. It's not attached to your family and your family name. And maybe your dad was the pastor. And maybe somebody was an elder. Somebody was a deaconess. And you were there when the doors were open. But it doesn't make you a Christian. Being born into a family doesn't make you a Christian any more than being at a church makes you a Christian. And being at a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than if I go eat Taco Bell after the service today, it doesn't make me Mexican. If I go to Maggiano's, it doesn't make me Italian. I'm American Indian, if anyone wants to know. I don't think there's any American Indian restaurants. But if you know of them, I'd love to hear. If you go to McDonald's, it doesn't make you a hamburger. If you hang out in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. If you go to church, it doesn't make you a Christian. Nor does being born into a certain family. You have to be what's called born again, born a second time, have a spiritual birth. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3. Ironically, he's talking to a religious teacher who should know this stuff. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born a second time, born again. So you're born naturally into a family. And what Jesus is talking about is a spiritual rebirth. And how does that happen? Well, one of the most famous verses in the Bible happens later in that chapter. And he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's Jesus Christ, that whoever, there's that word again, doesn't matter if your background was Muslim, Islamic, Hindu, Jehovah's Witness, you grew up in a Methodist church, you grew up in a Baptist church, but you never trusted Christ. Whoever, the invitation's for everybody, not everybody will take it. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the key is faith. The key is trust. The key is you stop trusting in yourself, stop trusting in your deeds, stop trusting in going to church, stop trusting in your family, whatever it is you trust in, and trust in Jesus. Believe in him and the work he did on the cross. And then you're born again. But not only are you born into the family, you're adopted into the family. Ephesians chapter 1 says it like this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So he chose us. In love, even though we were sinful, Romans chapter 5, we read that, to be blameless, to see us as blameless. How? He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure. And there's that word again. That was his will. And he's not willing that any would perish. John chapter 3, verse 16, will not perish. He wants all to have eternal life, and that happens when you believe on him. If you believed on him, you receive grace, you're reconciled to him, and you become part of God's family. You're adopted and born into the family. In New Testament times, there was a Roman law that if you had a child by natural birth, you were allowed to disown that child. Say they did something you hated or you know, did something that dis- you know, disrespected the family name, and you know the family is so important then. You could disown that child. But if you adopted a child, that child couldn't be disowned. As God's child, you're both born into and adopted into his family. Which means there's nothing you can do. Once you become part of his family, once you believe in him, you're given the right to be called a child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12, for all who believe in him, you give the right to be called a child of God. You can never not be his child. You didn't do anything to get yourself into his family. He did the work on the cross. You can't do something to get yourself out. You're always there. You're part of the family. It's a deep, intimate bond, and it's superior even to natural family. That the family of God is a family of faith. It's not just a family of faith, though. How do you know that it's a family of faith? Is you see that faith in action. That's our second point. That God's family puts faith into action. 
you see it lived out in obedience. And what does he say? You go back here and you look at verses 34 and 35. He looks around the searching look at the audience, verse 34. So then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. So here he is in this packed house and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever not knows or is aware of Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That's my family. And so the question becomes, what is God's will? Now, we, we mess this up. Nobody wants to know the answer to this. Like, what's God's will? And we talk about it, and we make it, you know, real mystical. Like, if the lights flicker on your way out today, that means you're supposed to get lunch at this place and not that place. And all these metaphysical type things. And, and we really, what we oftentimes do is we make God's will all about us. And we center it on us. Let me tell you something. God's will doesn't center on us. It centers on God. And I don't know who the first person that was that said it. They, this analogy is a great analogy. Uh, getting God's will to you know, revolve around us would be like going out into the ocean with a surfboard or a bodyboard and then making waves. You know how in a small pool you can make waves? And trying to do that in the ocean and trying to make waves so that you can ride on those waves. The problem is the ocean's way too big for you. The ocean will never center on your life. And God's will doesn't center on your life either. If you want to ride waves in the ocean... You get on the waves that God's already created and you ride those waves. And that's what it is with God's will too. You want to know God's will and we want to know, who do I marry? Where do I go to college? and What career am I supposed to have? Am I supposed to switch this career? And we try to make it all center on us. So here's what it means to do God's will. To do what God commands. Literally, that's what it means in the Greek in this passage. That you would do God's will, his, his desires. Do you know what he desires? That's what he's commanded. And so that's what it means in the Greek. In the Hebrew... It means to do what God commands. God's will, if you were to find an Aramaic Bible, would mean to do what God commands. If it were written in Spanish, it would mean to do what God commands. If you could find a Bible written in Latin, it would mean to do what God commands. If you read the old King James, it's to doeth what God commandeth. It means the same thing in all the passages. It's what does God command? And so then we're going to apply this passage to the family of God and to do, not just know, but do God's will then what does God command? And we can talk about anything. We can talk about holiness. We can talk about evangelism. We can talk about generosity. But given the context here, which is a context of family, I think it would be remiss if I didn't share with you that you can't possibly do God's will on your own. There are 59 verses in the New Testament that command us to do the one another's. Pray for one another. Greet one another. Holy kiss. Uh, carry each other's burdens. Confess sins to one another. Love one another. All the things that it's told to do in the scriptures, you cannot be an obedient Christian and live in isolation. You cannot be an obedient Christian. You cannot do God's will alone. Which should be a significant truth considering our time. I'm pretty confident, I don't know this exactly for sure, but apart from Adam, it's not good for man to be alone, he was the only person on the earth. Apart from him, I don't think there's been a lonelier time than there is today in human history. In fact, there's a recent study that came out that said that of Americans, there's about 300 million Americans, I think 318 million is exact, the exact number, but about 300 million Americans, and they said 60 million of those Americans, it's almost 20%, 60 million of them attribute their lack of happiness because of loneliness. Which then you think, but we've got Facebook and we've got Twitter and we've got Instagram and we've got Skype and so if our family lives in Russia, we can talk to them and we can travel with all the technology we have. And But we're so alone. I read one story uh, this week about a woman, her name was Yvette Vickers. I don't know if you saw her story or not. It came out, uh, it didn't come out this week, but I just read it. 
Uh, she's a former Playboy Playmate, a kind of a B-roll um, movie star. She, her most famous role was uh, as the 50-foot woman in Attack of the 50-foot Woman. And she died. No one knows exactly when, though. The L.A. coroner's report, she lived in L.A., the L.A. coroner's report said that her body had been mummified for a, a better part of a year when they found her. They don't know exactly when she died. Somewhere around 83 years old. They don't know exactly. The headline came out um, after she was found that said, uh, Mummified body, former Playboy playmate Yvette Vickers, found in her Benedict home. The way she was found was one of her neighbors, who's also an actress, was walking by her house and saw the cobwebs started to come up on the house and there were some yellow letters and finally one day she walked up to the door, there was a broken window, she stuck her hands through the broken window, unlocked the door, pushed the door open, there was a bunch of junk mail there. Said she pushed her way through a bunch of clothes that were in the house and a bunch of junk mail, went upstairs into this room and Yvette Vickers' body was there. The computer was still on, illuminating the room and she was mummified sitting next to the heater in the room. No one knows how long she's been there. No one knows when she died. After this article came out in the New York Times, she had, uh, I think it was over 16,000 Facebook posts that cited this article or mentioned her in it. 881 tweets went out about her. She was more popular in her death than she was in the years leading up to her death. And they started to investigate her life. She had no children. She had no family contact. She had no religious association. And so they started going to her phone bills. And in her phone bills, they discovered that she had begun reaching out to fans that had found her through a fan uh, forum and uh, different internet uh, like celebrity sites. And what they said was that as she got older, her relationships became broader and shallower, which is exactly what's happening to us. But no Christian's supposed to be alone. In fact, you can't even be an obedient Christian and live life alone. Are you lonely? It's not supposed to be that way. Not in the family of God. We've got 59 verses that tell us to living out the one another. We meet together regularly. You meet with one another. Why is that? Because otherwise you get hardened by sin and you don't even realize it's happening. Hebrews chapter 3. One of the most popular one another's of the scripture is to love one another. It gets repeated multiple times. Jesus says it like this. I think it's really interesting what Jesus says in this verse. It's not how I would have said it, which is so comforting that Jesus is so much better than me. In John chapter 13 and verse 35, he says this. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love I would have said them. I would have said uh, lost people will know that you have the love of Christ when you love lost people. That's not what the verse says. Look what it says. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The way you love each other will show them that you are my disciples. Because then they're going to see the kind of love that's superior even to family-type love, that you do God's will. Not just know it. Colin Powell tells a story. One time he was talking to a soldier that was about to go into battle, African-American soldier. He said to the young man, are you afraid? And the guy said, no, I'm not afraid. And he said, I'm not afraid because that's my family. And he nodded to the troops that were behind him. Some of them were white. Some of them were yellow. Some of them were black. All different backgrounds. Whoever. And then he said, we take care of one another. How did he know that? They weren't in battle yet. Now, I've never served in the military. I have great respect for those who've served in the military. If you've served in the military, you know what the training is like. You know what boot camp is like. You know what special training is like for special forces. You can watch, those of you who've never served, you want to gain some respect for those who have, uh, watch documentaries on Netflix. You can see, like, how to become a Navy SEAL. They drown those dudes. Have you seen, have anybody seen this? 
They have them sit out in the, the ocean in California, and they, they're holding on to each other, and the water's coming up, and then their sergeants are walking up going, hey, there's coffee inside. All you can do is quit. And they don't quit. You know how come that guy knew that those people were going to take care of each other? It wasn't because they were getting in the same airplane. It wasn't because they were wearing the same uniform. It's because they had already had experiences together. They knew they trusted each other, even with their lives. That's God's intention for his family, and that's what it's supposed to be like. Here's what we make Christianity like oftentimes. I go to a place, the same place every week, and I get a word from God. I get some Bible teaching, or I sing some songs that I like, and oftentimes we do that in our consumer culture, and so the church becomes a dispenser of religious goods. That is not God's intention for the church. God's intention for the church is to be rooted in relationships with one another. That the church is far more than an event of gathering together, but it's the relationships that happen, and you live life together. And as you're living life together, guess what happens? You start to trust one another, and you will go through the battle, by the way. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against angels, against principalities, against rulers and authorities of this dark world. It will happen. It might not be happening in your life today. Maybe it's three years from now. It'll happen. Who are your people? Who's got your back? Who's going to be there with you? That's what the church is supposed to be. I shared with you last week what's going through, going on in our family. I won't do all the details again, but for those of you who weren't here, last week our daughter had gotten taken out of our own front yard, and um, it was terrible, but she was returned back to us uh, physically unharmed. It wasn't gone for a super long time, and physically, we're doing okay. Emotionally, different story. We're working through some of this stuff, and it hasn't been great. Uh, I had a guy come up to me last week. It was the first time he had seen me. He was at church uh, since it had happened, but he knew it happened. He said, my prayer for you has been that you will not just isolate yourself and keep everything together with just your family, which was a great prayer for him to be praying. It's kind of a weird thing to say to somebody if you walk up to him, if you just think about it, but let me tell you why it was perfect. Because that's exactly what I wanted to do. It's just keep everybody together. Now, I know I preach messages on fear. You're not supposed to fear. And perfect love casts out fear. I know that stuff in my head, but it doesn't mean there aren't fears that I have right now. In fact, I have fears now that I didn't even know that I had got new fears and our kids are working through their fears and had that happen we had another lady called us up a friend of my wife's uh we actually met at the y so it's either we meet at church we met at the y and then she goes to our church now and uh she called my wife up and said i'm bringing food over and i mean we have food i mean the pantry didn't get emptied this other stuff happened and, and she said her exact statement was i'm from the south that's what we do i'm bringing food <laughs> all right bring food we'll eat it and then other people have been praying and caring and telling us their experiences. and That's the family of God, by the way. It's not always fun. But that's real. And it's not just because I'm the pastor. It happens, all the people that are, now there are, there's a good percentage of people that just come to this church, attend this church, and then leave. Uh, I think it's on the, out of our adult attendance, I think about 64% of you are members of our church. Being a member of the church doesn't mean you get on some list somewhere. It means you're identifying you want to be cared for by this church and you want to be a part of what's happening here. And so some, it's like making itself known that this is your family. Uh, and then the rest of the people that come then aren't, aren't really connected. And if you just keep doing that regularly, I would just challenge you, either become a member of this church or go find another church because you need to get connected with people. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. And the other people that are connected, it happens for them too. It's not just me because I'm the pastor. I asked some of the folks in our church, some of their stories this week. I had one young couple, uh, Josh and Jessica Nance. They're the kind of couple that makes our church better. The fact that they're here, we're a better church because of them. And they shared a story about uh, they had been here for a couple years before this, had 
helped other people through difficult circumstances. In 2014, they lost a baby uh, due to a miscarriage. If any of you have had that experience, you know it's awful. And they said what ended up happening was one family unsolicited the Travises. Some of you know the Travises. They've been here for since almost the very beginning of our church. Um, they just showed up at their house. Not a bunch of answers, not to try and fix everything, just to be present. And Jessica shared with me about the ministry of their presence. And then other people brought meals and other people came over and prayed over them. And, and Denise connected Jessica with another lady in our church who she didn't know at that point, uh, Janet Clinton, who's got a medical background. She said, Janet became my go-to girl of talking about medical stuff. That's how the body of Christ works, by the way. So those people came and prayed over them. A year later, uh, they gave birth to their, their first child, Johnny, that was born here. And she said, you know who showed up? It was those people that came and prayed over us. It was those people, that, the Travises, it was Janet. Those are the people. That is God's family. Other people share different stories. Uh, one gentleman, Roger Ham, his group is uh, age demographic-wise a little bit more mature than some of us. Not a good, that's a good way for a pastor to say it. They're, they're wise. They're a lot of wise people. And He was sharing with me in his group, though, how they were confessing sin with each other. We're going through Mark together. And so you see that there's a contrast between religion and a relationship with Christ. So we've talked about that. And they were talking about how in the early years of their Christianity, when they were young parents, a lot of their way of living was more like a Pharisee than it was like Jesus. And they were legalistic. And so they were confessing that to each other. And some of them said, we need to confess that to our kids. Now, who do you confess sin to? And who holds you accountable when you need to confess sin to someone else like your grown children? So that's what the family does. It's God's family. Roger, thanks so much for sharing that and being transparent. Other people, Megan, there's a young lady named Megan who her husband died this past year. She's young, by the way, young widow. And people in our church, she'd only been here for about six months, but people knew, they recognized what had happened. And they invited her, when Christmas time came, they invited her to come stay at their house on Christmas Eve to come to service together so she didn't have to come to the Southford service all by herself. And then stay the night at our house. You can get up with our family in the morning. And they loved her, but here's what else they did. When she was weeping on Christmas, she didn't have to pretend like everything was just okay because I'm a Christian, everything must be okay. It still hurts. She said they were okay with it. Other people ministered or multiple people involved with, with her story. That's God's family. One young lady, Lacey Ryan, she's now married to our youth pastor. Uh, when she first came to our church, wasn't a member or anything, got diagnosed with breast cancer. And she said, I didn't hardly know anybody. Then I got overwhelmed with how many people started sending emails and notes and gifts and just loving on her. That's God's family. I mentioned the Travises, how they loved on other people. Uh, they can tell you their story. They've been here the first weekend that we were here at the movie theaters when they first started coming to church. They've been here for almost a decade now. And so we've seen them go through job losses. We've seen family members of theirs pass away. Uh, Chris has shared uh, his struggles with CR and how CR people had come alongside him and walked with him through some sin issues. And, and Denise, so she's there. If I'm going to share one story, she said, it's when we adopted our son how overwhelmed we were by the love of people coming into our lives. And she said another small group, not even her own small group, another small group had a baby shower for her, gave them a bunch of gifts. She said, we didn't buy diapers for our, our kid for like six months. She said, I don't even know these people. That's extended family, by the way. There's like 850 people were here last week. I mean, I don't even know all 850 people. Okay, those are like your extended, that's like Cousin Eddie, right? Like there's the weird uncles that are out there. There's folks out there. But then you got your closer, more intimate family. Those are the people you serve with. Those are the people that you call. Those are the people that call you. Those are the people that notice when you're not here. Those are the people that are in your small group. Those are the people that are on your team, that, that when you're serving on a team. That's your family. And we're all family, but there's this immediate family. And what you do is you pray for one another, you care for one another, you carry each other's burdens. And you're, that's God's family. And that is even closer 
than a natural family. That's not anti-family. It's just a different level. And it's for, verse 35, whoever, whoever will trust Christ. If you've trusted Christ, you're in that family. Are you doing God's will? You can't do it unless you live out the one another's. So let me give you some practical ways you can do that. If you're not a member of this church, you can become a member of this church. It's real easy. What you do is you go to our Next Steps class. You want to sign up for Next Steps? Pull out your app on your phone. If you don't have a smartphone, it's on the internet, or you can go to one of those tents. And just sign up for Next Steps. The next one's on May 15th at 10.30, Theater 12. You can serve, or you can uh, come and attend the 9 o'clock, then go to the, that for the, the class. If you've been around here for a long time and you're not a member, you think, well, they just know. No, become a member of the church. Start the process from the beginning. Some of you need to get in a small group. Um, some of you, that's not the season you're in right now. I'll tell you, honestly, I'm not in a small group right now. But I know those people because I've been in a small group for just over eight years. not in a small group right now because I'm working on my doctorate. So they don't have another evening. Some of you are at that place. You know what you should do? You've got to get connected to relationships still. Serve. You're already here. Come serve during one service. Worship during the other service. Find a spot. We've got volunteer coming up. It's on the website. You can sign up for it. And again, a small group, go through the app. Go to the website. You can get a small group. If you're invited, if you're not part of God's family, you place your faith in Jesus. And that's what I challenge you to do today. If you're part of God's family, don't be part of a dysfunctional version of God's family. See, the world's seen enough people arguing as Christians and the way we're portrayed in the media as haters and all that stuff. Let them see the way we love one another. You know, some of my neighbors, they were affected by what happened in my neighborhood. One of them, their house was broken into. Another one was stabbed. I've had neighbors say to me, and we've seen your congregation show up. You know, I've had people show up that we were in a small group with years ago just show up at our house. They see the way we love one another. And then they know we're his disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to be a part of your family. Thank you that the invitation is open to any and all who will take it. God, I pray if there's someone here, maybe they've got a Muslim background, maybe they've got a Hindu background, maybe they've just always gone to church and thought they were a Christian. God, will you work in their hearts right now and have this be the moment where they place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Use all the love that they've seen from other Christians up to this point to point them to you. Use your spirit's convicting of their sin and their need for a savior to point them to you and have them trust your son, Jesus, as savior right in this moment. If you want to do that, you just pray to Jesus. Acknowledge your sin before him and shift your trust from whatever you're trusting into what he did on the cross. Repent, turn from your sin and turn to him. And God, I thank you for each one that's part of this family, this church family. And there might be some here from out of town that are just part of your family. I pray that we would love one another well, that we pray for one another, that we carry each other's burdens, that we would be a demonstration of what you want your family to look like in a functional manner. Thank you for the unity you've preserved in this church. Thank you for the guidance. And I pray you just glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.